The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 59 of the murder in my family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be exploring the brutal and senseless attack on a young couple in 1978 on a beach in Southern California that left 15-year-old Barbara Nantes dead and her 17-year-old boyfriend, Jim Alt, seriously wounded. We'll jump into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy the show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend, inviting them to listen. With your help, the show can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurdermyfamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Sarah Lenga, And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support this show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Be sure to stay tuned at the end of this episode for an announcement about a special project I'm taking part in. It should be really fun, and you can take part in it too. Thank you, and now on with the show. Barbara Jane Nantes was born in Los Angeles County, California, on September 28, 1962, to Ralph and Judy Nantes. She has three siblings, two sisters, Lorraine and Sue, and a brother named Thomas. In 1978, Barbara was 15 years old and a sophomore at her high school in Lakewood, California, where she was a popular varsity cheerleader. Barbara was very pretty and described by those who loved her as outspoken, smart, and strong-willed. She had been dating a boy named Jim Alt, who was 17 years old, for nine months. Jim was a popular student at Jordan High School in Long Beach. Jim was a fit teenage boy with long blonde hair and a surfer's tan who loved the party. The two were crazy for one another, and one of the things the young couple loved doing together was spending time together on the beaches in Southern California. On August 13, 1978, the couple were hanging out in Barbara's home. Her father, Ralph, was preparing for a weekend trip with Barbara's mother, Judy. He asked Jim not to take Barbara anywhere over the weekend, and Jim agreed that they would stay home. 
but as is typical with teenagers, Jim said that just to appease his girlfriend's dad. In reality, the young couple planned to go out with friends. As soon as her parents left, Barbara and Jim shoved extra clothes and surfing gear into bags and hopped into a station wagon with friends Rick Selga, who was 19 years old, and his girlfriend Cynthia Ancog. The two couples headed south to San Diego, stopping at Torrey Pines State Beach. The teenagers didn't wind up surfing because the waves weren't great that day, so they drank some alcohol instead. Around 9.30 p.m., Barbara and Jim headed down to the beach with their sleeping bags for more privacy and to settle in for the night. They picked a spot near Lifeguard Tower 7 and eventually fell asleep. Jim was jolted awake in a haze and a shivering frenzy. When he tried to stand, he became dizzy. He groped for his sleeping bag, but only found sand. He looked around for Barbara, but couldn't see her. He couldn't see much of anything. Confused and scared, Jim slowly made his way to Rick and Cynthia, who had spent the night in their station wagon up from the beach. He pounded on the car window a few times until he woke Rick, who was hungover from the alcohol from the night before. When Rick woke up, he was irritated at first, until he saw his friend on the other side of the window covered in blood and badly beaten. He asked Jim what happened, and Jim simply replied, Fine Barb. Rick raced from the station wagon, and headed to the beach in search of Barbara. He soon found her nude, lifeless body spread-eagled and covered in blood. Her killer had dragged her across the sand in an area north of Lifeguard Tower 7. Barbara's limp head was propped up by a log. Rick covered her body with the blood-soaked sleeping bags that were nearby, and ran as fast as he could back to the parking lot screaming for help. Police soon descended on the beach, looking for clues. An autopsy showed Barbara had a fractured skull and her throat showed signs of strangulation. She had been sexually assaulted and her right nipple cut off. Wet sand was stuffed into her mouth. The attack on her had been a brutal and sadistic one. Her cause of death was listed as blunt injuries to the head and strangulation. While police combed the scene trying to find any evidence, Jim had been rushed to the nearest hospital where he underwent emergency surgery. Doctors had to put a metal plate into his skull. His attacker had pummeled him in the head with a rock and charred logs from the fire pit. Jim remained in a coma for several days. When he finally awoke, he had no memory of the attack, and investigators were anxious to talk to him. He found their questions to be very accusatory, and he knew that they thought he might have killed Barbara. Jim awoke to an unthinkable situation, and the shocking news that his young girlfriend was dead. There was very little evidence in the case, and it went cold. In 2008, the San Diego Cold Case Squad unit posted two cases on their website, Barbara's and another girl named Claire Huff's. She was found murdered on the same beach in 1984, and like Barbara, Claire had been killed in August, and in the exact same manner as Barbara. She was sexually assaulted, strangled, and mutilated. The unit posted on the website that the two cases were possibly related, but based on the MO and similarities, it seems hard to think that they weren't. The FBI got involved, and its profilers concluded that, that the two murders were suspected to be related, based on case characteristics, location, and victim selection. But both cases went cold again. In 2012, advanced DNA testing identified two DNA hits on Clear Huff. Blood found on her genes was linked to a convicted rapist named Ronald Tatro. The other DNA hit came from a microscopic amount of blood on a vaginal swab and it linked to a man named Kevin Brown, 
who just happened to be a criminalist in the San Diego Police Department lab. He retired in 2002. Kevin Brown's wife, Rebecca, insisted her husband was innocent, and his lawyers blamed cross-contamination in the lab for the DNA link. Furthermore, investigators never found a connection between Brown and Tatro. But police fired back that Kevin Brown had no association with any evidence processing Claire's case, nor was he assigned to any part of the investigation. It seemed justice was out of reach for Claire Huff. Tatro died in 2011 from a boating accident, and just as investigators were preparing to arrest Kevin Brown for Claire's brutal murder, he took his own life. Police once considered Brown and Tatro suspects in Barbara Nantes' murder. However, Tatro was in prison on the day of her murder, and Brown was away at college in Sacramento, so this seemed to rule both men out, and left investigators back at square one searching for possible suspects. In 2012, lab technicians tested several pieces of evidence in Barbara's case. They included three rocks used in the attack, fingernail scrapings, swabs taken from Barbara Nantes' body, three sleeping bags, a cigarette butt found near Barbara's body, and a necklace Barbara was wearing around her neck. They found Jim Alt's DNA on the rocks, as well as unidentified low-level DNA mixtures. On the sleeping bags, Jim's DNA was found on one, and DNA from Rick Selga and Cynthia Ancog on the other. DNA from an unknown male was found on the cigarette butt, and the testing report stated, quote, This DNA profile will periodically be searched against the CODIS database. Regardless of all the testing, no suspect has ever been identified. A new software program called True Allele, made by Pittsburgh firm Cybergenics, can reanalyze old DNA test results. Low-level DNA mixtures can now be separated out, Additionally, with modern DNA technology, numerous hairs found at the crime scene can now be analyzed. Those hairs don't even have to have a root present. So there's a very strong possibility that Barbara's murder can be solved one day using DNA. But the wait for that day has been a struggle, both for Barbara's family and for Jim Alt. Jim suffered from survivor's guilt ever since his beautiful young girlfriend was savagely murdered. Right after Barbara's death, he dropped out of high school and turned to drugs and alcohol. He got into fights and was arrested for assault. He struggled with holding down a job and he's been married several times. Barbara's father, Ralph Nantes, initially blamed Jim for his daughter's death. But a few years after the murder, he realized Jim had never recovered. And in 1994, he sent him a letter before Jim got married, in which he wrote, You will be married in a short time, and I want you to try and erase this experience from your mind. Try and be as loving and kind to your wife as you were with Barbara for I know she loved you dearly. Today, Jim All owns and runs a Facebook group called Surviving Victims of Violent Crimes. He also has a website about his attack and Barbara's murder called outofdarkintolight.com. He discusses and shares his experience with others while helping people who have experienced similar tragedy make strides to move forward. He's never forgotten his young love, Barbara Nantes, and is determined to be part of finding out who murdered her and nearly ended his life in the process. I sat down with Jim to discuss his tragic case and his long and difficult journey. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Audible. What is Audible? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word, entertainment, and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, Audible members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. 
as well as access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. You'll also get guided meditation programs. Audible has plenty of content that can help you pursue your goals, whether it's getting fit, finishing more books, or becoming a better parent, leader, or person. With Audible, you can download titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets, and you can listen across devices without losing your spot. If you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year. This week on Audible, I checked out Trivia from the Fog by John Carpenter and How to Be a Man by Duff McKagan. Trust me, you'll find stuff on Audible that you'll love in every genre. To get started with Audible, visit audible.com slash fam or text fam to 500-500. Once again, go to audible.com slash fam or text fam to 500-500. Our next sponsor is BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can now get help on your time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Licensed professional counselors are available who are specialized in anger issues, depression, stress, anxiety, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. There are 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and BetterHelp is available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. BetterHelp is available on desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, but it's secure, convenient, and professional. And financial aid is available for those who qualify. If you're a regular listener of this show, then you know that sometimes we all have a lot to deal with, and BetterHelp can help you through those times. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. The Murder My Family listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code FAMILY. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com family. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Once again, go to BetterHelp.com family and use discount code FAMILY. Hi, Jim, and thank you for joining me to discuss Barbara's case and your case, uh, actually, with us today. Thank you, Mike, for having me. I appreciate it, sir. And and I, I just want to start off by saying that if, if my memory serves, you're a unique guest on the show because you aren't just talking about a loved one that was murdered, but you yourself survived an attack by by that killer that took your loved one from you. Uh, in this case, it was Barbara. And your story and your insights are invaluable so I'm, I'm happy that you're here and alive to tell your story thank you <laughs> me too <clears throat> unfortunately uh, it's a story that that shouldn't have to be told you know yeah uh, 14 years later but um here we are can you tell us a little bit about barbara uh, you know how long had you been dating her and what kind of person she was what are some of the things that drew you to her um barbara uh wow uh the the moment I saw her, the, the minute our eyes, we, we looked at each other, I knew I was going to, that was going to be my girl. Um, I absolutely knew that. Um, she was outspoken, had a, had a kind of a rasp in her voice. Uh, you know, um, I don't, I don't know. I, I can't even give you a, a, a person that, that we could identify that with. She just had, had a, had a rasp in her voice, very beautiful girl, dark hair, dark eyes. 
um, personality was up off the chart, very popular at her school. We went to rival schools. She went to Lakewood high and I went to Jordan high in long beach. She lived in Lakewood. Um, just, uh, just someone that's whose light shined farther than uh, you could, you could tell she was coming that, that type of a personality. Very, um, she's a very loving person. Um, obviously she only lived on this earth for 15 years, but she was, well beyond those 15 years with her thinking the way she did things you, you know it, it was she was calm 122 uh the, the way she acted Maybe um like an old soul or something like that oh yeah, yeah thank you that's a good one that, that's it right there um that's absolutely it absolutely she she could talk to anyone and and everyone would listen to her so that's how I remember, uh, you know, I, 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 I want to say nine months. Um, I, I, I don't remember how long it was. People ask, you know, uh, some of the shows I've been on, you know, they've asked Jim, let, have, we need a photograph of you and Barbara. We never photographed. I mean, we weren't around people like that. I don't know I, if that makes sense. Back then, not, not a whole lot of people had cameras, but if they did, we didn't. We were doing our own thing. We didn't. We didn't feel the need to to be photographed. So there, there. You know, I've asked this on social media. Please, folks, if you have anything of Barbara and I together, send it. No one had anything. You know that they just knew Barbara and I were were the couple. You know. So all you have so, after all this time is uh, are the memories of, of being with her. Mem- exactly, memories and and other people's memories of us. Are very, uh, very, very uh, heartwarming, very moving, and some of the things that were told to me that that people remember about Barbara and myself. Um, don't ask me now what they were because I'm kind of um, feeling emotional at the moment. But um, yeah, no, she was a one of a kind. Never again will this earth be blessed with a. a, a a woman like Barbara Nantes. If we can, let's let's start out at the beginning. It's summertime, 1978, uh, Southern California, San Diego. I imagine you're a 17-year-old teenager. You've got to be living in paradise at that point. Um, what was that area like during that time? You know, we grew up in, in uh, Long Beach, and uh, we just happened to, to go to that beach that day um, it wasn't, uh, something that we had discussed. We just, we, we were, we went down South. We considered, uh, you know, going to San Onofre, uh, trestles, uh, those surfing spots was down South and we never really went in San Diego uh, until that day. I'd never been to Torrey Pines ever. So it was kind of a new experience for me to try to surf down there. It was another couple that that we went with. It just turned into a nightmare. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Well, and you were seventeen at the time. You're dating Barbara. She's fifteen. A very pretty brown haired girl. I saw one interview. One interview that you said, you know, you were a surfer and she loved the sun. So you were quite a pair, I guess, for for the beaches down there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, her and her girlfriends love to, um, you know, worship the sun. And I was in the water all the time, so surfing. We just we hit it off really well, Barbara and I. We we when the crowd went to the right, we turned left. She was outspoken. I was outspoken. 
Um, we were just a, a really fun couple to, to be around, I guess. My friend uh, Rick, Richard Selga, and his girlfriend at the time was Cynthia Ancog. Um, and then we, uh, as a matter of fact, we uh, Cynthia was able to get her father's uh, station wagon for the weekend, called me and told me, and I said, let's go surfing. And I called Barbara, and we just all decided to go surfing for the weekend. Barbara's parents had stepped out uh, for the weekend, and her father, Ralph, had asked me you know, to keep an eye on Barbara and, you know, keep her safe. Don't go anywhere. And, and that was, I, I had said this before, it was the biggest lie I've ever told because I knew I was going to go to the beach with his daughter and, and another cup for the weekend. We were just going to come home before mom and dad did, you know? That's kind of how the other couple, you know, Rick Rick was going to drive the vehicle. So, um, you know, he stopped by, picked me up, and then we grabbed Barbara, and we were on the on our way. We we camped the first night, I want to say, um, between San Onofre and, and Trestles, because uh, we had surfed that day, and um, we wanted to continue to surf the following day. And I don't know what, we did surf in the morning, and then we took up and why we ended up going to Torrey Pines. I have no idea. I, I really don't never been there, never heard of the place. Um, it just didn't even sound cool to me then. You guys are sort of just randomly going wherever you're having fun. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how it was when you'd surf, you know, um, you would, some spots would be, would be breaking. Okay. And other spots would be blown out and, you know, maybe, uh, very small waves. So we would always check all these spots. We'd check it, you know? Um, and how we should have turned around because I did say that to Rick. Um, I said, you know, if we turn around and go back to San Onofre or Trestles, by the time we get there, it'll be glassed off and we can, we can surf the evening, evening glass, you know, afternoon glass. And for whatever reason, we ended up getting a overnight, parking pass for uh the state beach there um, so this is a new place to you i don't know anything about surfing but i assume you're looking for certain features certain things when you go to a beach um what was your take on tory pines beach was there anything that stood out uh, about the surfing uh, conditions about the beach itself about people that might have been around the beach was there anything that caught your attention well yeah here's the thing we, we were surfing uh at in San Clemente at, at Trestles, and it was shoulder high, head high. Um, it had gotten blown out, which that, that's when the wind comes and kind of destroys your waves. Uh, so we decided to, to check it, you know, go further down south and, and find a spot that might be, you know, that, that wasn't affected by the wind, the tide, or what have you. Yeah, what, what caught my mind is I, I had surfed that morning. Uh, we were driving, so I kind of dozed off for a minute. I don't know what what woke me up, but we had just come over the, the, the hill there that drops down in the Torrey Pines, and it was blown out, and the waves weren't higher than my knee. I didn't like the way it looked at all. You couldn't park on the beach side. You had to park on the other side uh, on uh, uh, Pacific Coast Highway. I go, what are we doing here? He goes, oh, we're going to camp here. I go, no, 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 no. <laughs> Turn around, let's go catch that afternoon glass where we were. And for whatever reason, we ended up staying there. We, we 
we had to, we, the first parking lot we went to, they were full and they directed us a mile down to their overflow parking lot and uh, they were still taking uh, cars. So we went ahead and paid and found a spot where we were going to camp for the evening, you know, or, or what have you. And, you know, people were tailgating where everyone's drinking and it's, you know, um, like a, 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 a surfing party. I, I can't explain it. Just everyone w- was partying. And uh, I, I wasn't interested really in, in partying there. I don't know why. I, I was having a good time with Barbara. I didn't, I didn't need to party, you know, and that's what I did back then. Obviously everyone drank and smoked and, and all that good stuff. But, uh, we just kind of hung out and we, we, we cooked something to eat. I remember Barbara was grabbing steaks and, and all, all this good stuff out of the refrigerator and her sisters were getting really upset. I'm going to tell dad on you too. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And she was just smiling, loading up our, our uh, ice chest with, with all this good stuff. So I, I would imagine um, we would have probably had steak that night, would have barbecued it. Um, and every all the guys were riding skateboards around the parking lot. Girls were riding bicycles. It was really like a, 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 a beach blanket bingo. <laughs> That's all I can think of. You know, one of them... Uh, if if you see one of those surfer type movies where where the you know everyone does what they do, it's kind of kind of what we did, you know. Typical frisbee day. You've got people just going about their business, having fun on the on the beach and on a Southern California well, day. It sounds like we weren't even on the beach, Mike. That's the trip about it. We were everyone was doing this in the parking lot. Okay, where where we were going to be camping that night. So you would you would have your little strip of parking. <laughs> A lot that you paid for, and uh, you know, you you kind of party there, and maybe the people three, four cars down would, hey man, come on over. You know what I'm saying? It kind of kind of went that way, where just you'd start meeting people, you know, and everyone wants to have a good time. We want to surf in the morning, you know. The girls want to hang out on the beach, catch some rays, and um, that's kind of how it all was going along that afternoon. You know, kind of cool. I didn't notice anything anything strange when we were in the parking lot. Barbara and I had never gone to the beach there. We took the bike path, which was quarter mile plus, and had to go down uh, some cliffs to get onto the beach. We ended up doing that at night. Um, that was the first time I'd been on that beach when we had walked down that night. So you go down there, um, you set up for this night of, of camping you got your gear out there you're you're on the, the sand at this point where was the other couple did they stay back up near the cars or were they on a different section of the beach right no rick and, and cynthia they were going to stay in the station wagon so barb and i grabbed uh sleeping bags and you know all the fun stuff that that we carried down to the beach and you know i zipped two sleeping bags together. So, you know, we both nice and comfy in, in the bag, in the one bag. Um, you know, as we're coming down that, the cliff, so we were just standing there at the fence, someone had cut the chain link fence so you could pass through, or you'd have to walk around. And I didn't know that you, you could walk six steps from the parking lot and be on the beach. We kind of took the long way around. When I tell you, we went under, Pacific Coast Highway, 
um, because we were on the opposite side. We weren't beachside. Our car was on the opposite side of the freeway. So the bike path went underneath uh, Pacific Coast Highway, and then it, it, it you'd, you'd come up. There's a, a fence there, and it was it, now the bike path was going south again, going towards uh, Tijuana, towards Mexico. Anyway, someone had had cut through that part of the fence, and we were able to pass through there, all our gear through there, and then kind of slide down the, this footpath down to the uh, uh, sand. But before we hit the sand, I, I was telling her, look at all that. Everyone had their fire pit lit up. And this very last fire pit that we were at, it wasn't lit up, and that's the one we were going to hang at. We didn't have any campfire, you know, we didn't have any firewood. Um, we were just going to hang out and, and, you know, do our thing. And, and in the morning, I was going to go out and grab my surfboard and uh, go surfing. So you weren't alone on this beach or other people you could see out there camping or um, spread out. Um, right. No camping was allowed on the beach. Um, I saw that sign when when uh, when we went through the fence. It said, uh it said no camping on the beach, beach patrolled. So I remember saying to Barbara, if the beach is patrolled, you know, we'll, we'll go back up to the car. And she agreed. And that never happened. No one patrolled. And, we, you know, we, we, we had a nightmare there. So I assume everything's okay. You guys settle in for the night. You go to sleep in your sleeping bags. Um, then comes the attack. And I know the attack... You had blows to your head, affected your memory, you, some serious injuries that you suffered. And, and some of it, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, has been difficult for you to recall some of the details about what happened, how things unfolded. Do you, uh, now looking back, do you have recollections or memories of what what happened and when you knew something was wrong? Well, I never knew something was wrong. I, I when I woke up, I, I was I was cold because I was wet. Um, I didn't know. I, I I couldn't see anything. I, I thought, man, I don't remember it being this dark to myself. I'm not hurting, you know, at all. Um, but I'm wet, and I'm not sure. Did it rain last night? Did what happened? Um, later, I found out it was all the blood on me. Um, was why, but I, I didn't know what it was. My hands were sticky. It had, they had sand on them. I, I couldn't clear my, clean my hands of the sand. It was very strange. I remember feeling for Barbara, feeling for our stuff. Um, and I, I finally found a sleeping bag and I wrapped that around me and I started the walk up back up to the parking lot. Um, I thought that once I got through the fence again, I had I had to crawl around the fence to try to find that hole. Um, when I when I came through that the fence that was cut, if I would have went straight, I would have went off the uh, bike path and I wouldn't have gone anywhere. If I would have went right, I would have been heading towards Mexico. If I turned left, I would have followed the bike path. That's what I eventually did was turn left when I felt the bike path. Now I, my head's the size of a basketball. My eyes are swollen shut. I was told. When I got to the car, Rick, Rick didn't even know it was me. Uh, anyway, I, I made that that journey from from the uh, fence around that back underneath the freeway, and then I went straight down to the women's restroom. The cops say that I left transfer blood on on the walls there. That's blood from me going, you know, onto some transferring it onto something else. I was looking for Barbara in my mind. 
No one was in the restroom. I couldn't see nothing. I tried to wash my hands off at the sink. I, I couldn't, I tried to touch my head and it was very strange because my head didn't feel my hands, but my hand felt my head. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And something was wrong. I, but here again, I'm not hurting. I don't know anything. I, I don't know uh, anything that, that had happened. I make it back to the, the car, which there was only like 40 cars in the parking lot. It was that parking lot got filled to capacity uh, while Barbara and I were down on the beach. So I, how did I crawl or walk or whatever to our, our car? And I knock on the window. You know, Rick goes, Jim, you know, and I go, go find Barb. And that was it. I woke up uh, being put in the uh, ambulance. I remember seeing something, but again, my eyes were swollen shut. And we'll talk about that later about my eyes. But um, I had a out of body experience as well in the hospital. Uh, very strange. But um, that's kind of the, the story about, uh, you know, the, from from being attacked, they had drugged Barbara away from me. Um, so she was in another location, and I didn't know where that was. That's why I didn't find her. Did Rick go down to the beach to look for her after you went back to the car at all? Yes, he did. He took off running, and, and um, you know, that's that's where his trauma lies, is he, he found Barbara. He was positioned for shock value by the son of a bitch that did this, um, decided that they would just leave a nice little uh, surprise for whoever found her. And, and that's where Rick's trauma is. Um, he had to see that. And I, I wish he didn't, didn't, you know, I don't know how he found her. I don't know how she was positioned. I never wanted to know, you know, that's not stuff I, I need to know. I know too much about stuff that we 42 years, man, 42 years of all this crazy, these crazy thoughts in my head about who did this. And it's, it's not a fun journey and I don't wish this on anybody. I know the, the time sort of blurred for you and then you were out of it. Um, do you know how long it took for you guys to contact the police and then for, to get there to the beach to, to see what was going on? I believe once Rick, uh, he had someone else, he had grabbed and they went down. They found Barbara. They came running up and Rick took someone's moped and drove to a payphone and called the police. When the cops arrived, I have no idea. Um, obviously, I, I was I, I was probably on my way to Scripps Memorial Hospital there in San Diego. Um, and thank you to them. They were they did neurosurgery on me. They, they kind of like the $6 million man. I got titanium in the cranium. You know, they rebuilt my, my stuff and I'm, I'm able to talk to you now because of the advancements that uh, Scripps Memorial, where they were at at that time. Part of this out of body experience, I'll tell you, um, I recall being laid out on the operating table. There were two people to my right. One, I, I believe to be a, a, the doctor there was one person on the left, um, don't know what that person, what their role was. There was an anesthesiologist behind me. How I know that is because they'd bring that mask and set it on my face. 
at that time, the, the person on the right, the tall person in a gown, you know, all you can see is the eyes because they have the, the cap and the gown and they're in white. He reaches up and moves the, uh, moves the light that they use in surgery. And up above was a, a window and there were 12 people all in white gowns. Um, and they were looking down on me and I, I thought I was being judged. I, 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 I had no clue what was going on later. Um, I would say a month later, I started to, you know, describe some stuff to my mother and she just burst into tears and she asked me, how did you see that? She says, I allowed them to have a class because that type of surgery hadn't been done before. And um, there were 12 students up there, and that kind of tripped me out, uh, how I saw that when I couldn't see. Very strange. So it's like they were they were observing the surgery, learning exactly. how to do it. Wow. wow. Exactly, yeah. I thought I was being judged. You know, I took my girlfriend to the beach, you know. I still didn't know what was going on. I kept asking my mother, "What? what why, why are there cops in my room what where, where's barbara and every time i'd ask about barbara they removed her from my room i could hear my mother you know being shuffled out of the room and i didn't know what was going on they had uh cops in my room because they thought whoever did it was going to come back and try to finish me off when they found out i was alive how soon did you find out that Barbara had died? And uh, as a young person, how did you process that? Because I assume when you're that age, you're not used to people close to you dying, especially in, in that kind of manner. How did you right. find out and, and how did you deal with that? Well, you know, here, here's, here's where I, I start with San Diego Police Department. They, uh, in their ultimate wisdom, they decided to have the doctor slit my eyes open because my eyes weren't opening. I don't know how long this was. I, I had come out of a coma uh, and where they came up with this bright idea. Let's, uh, let's open, I don't know if you remember the movie Rocky, where uh, his uh, coach yeah. cuts his eyes open. With a, that's what they did to me. Uh, they did it for a couple of days, and I remember the doctor unwrapping the, the stuff around my head. I know he wasn't liking it, the, the doctor, the things they were running uh, him to do. But for three days, he put ointment on my eyes and he tried to slip my eyes open. The third day when they slipped my eyes open, the minute I could see, they asked me, why did you kill Barbara? And that's how I learned Barbara was, had been murdered. I was accused of murdering her. That's awful. Why did that kill Barbara? Who helped me back to the car? Um, all kinds of questions. It's like, I, Leave me the fuck alone right now, people. Pardon me, but leave me alone, people. I didn't know how to process it. I'm sure I would have would have died. Um, I would have given up um, when I was in a coma or whatever. Had I known what I know now, I can see why the medical folks didn't want you know didn't want me knowing about that. I believe the police wanted me to know about it as soon as they could. They I, why did they want to see my eyes? Um, when they asked me, did I kill Barbara? I mean, what did that have to do with anything? I wasn't going to look to the left or to the right. I looked, you know, it's like, what? You just told me the love of my life is dead, and you think I did it. Nice. What, what do you say at 17 to that? It was a nightmare, and it's been a nightmare. They've doped me up. They put sodium pentothal in my arms. They hypnotized me. 
um, they did all kinds of fun things to me, and they promised me last August they were going to let me hear those audio tapes because maybe, just maybe, I would hear something and say, bada-bing, there it is. This is what happened. Um, but because they drugged their feet, and they know they did, and I had someone from Canon explain to me that, Jim, to have that media turned into digital media would only take us 72 hours at the, at the most. He said, unless they're working with Stone Age equipment or they're just dragging their feet. I said that in an email. Ten minutes later, I was, no, sorry, Jim, you're not going to listen to the tapes. And um, I, I believe I, I might be able to hear something that uh, would bring back, even just my own memories, something from my own memory uh, would, would be awesome. Uh, something that could solve the case would be great. Why aren't they... They allowing me to listen to these tapes. I don't know. They've told me the tapes are not submissible in court. That's why they were going to let me hear them. Um, so that is kind of uh, what I call re-victimizing the victim. I, I guess you're processing this at, at, at that age. Hey, they think I killed my own girlfriend on top of all these wounds that you have. Um, Barbara's family is has lost her your family's worried about you. How did this affect both of your families? What were you all going through uh, in this aftermath? It devastated everything. I mean, for me to find out Barbara was murdered and then to find out they had already buried her, that was so crushing to me that I didn't even get to say my goodbyes to her with everybody else. It's like, you know, just be thankful you're alive, Mr. Alt. This is what I've been told all my life. It's like, wow. You know, and something uh, like this podcast and a lot of uh, shows that I've done, 48 Hours, you know, uh, Dark Minds on Investigation Discovery, People Magazine, stuff like that. There's always Barbara, 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 and bless her heart, she's in a better place than I am right now. Whatever she saw, you know, I, I, I wish she'd never seen it. I, 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 uh, the love of my life. But there, there were two tragedies on that beach. That night, one still walking, talking, trying to survive with PTSD trauma. I was not able to defend her. I wasn't able to defend myself. But what the cops say is they straddled me in that sleeping bag with my arms under, underneath the bag. Um, hello, I'm in a straitjacket in a sense. You all right? And they take a rock and a log out of the fire pit and they use that to crush my skull. I have a new nose, my orbital, eye sockets rebuilt, part of my jaw. It's just been fun. So to, to not be recognized as, oh, the boyfriend, you know, that that's it. There's a whole other story here uh, b besides Barbara as well. It's a tragedy for, for both of us. I, I, I wish that... Uh, and it's it's now been four decades that you've had to deal with all the emotional, physical damage that you suffered right 42 years uh this august 13th will be 42 years um it's been very difficult i turned to drugs and alcohol right when i got out of the hospital in 1986 i turned 26 i quit doing every drug every i, I quit i don't drink i don't do drugs um i i just i had enough um and then i had moved over to uh, Georgia, and I did not know I had post-traumatic stress disorder. My brother was, we were talking on the phone. 
So you, you've for the past 42 years, you've had um, to deal with the, the emotional and the physical uh, damage that you suffered. And then you, you talked about how you didn't realize you had post-traumatic stress until you moved to Georgia. Right, right. Yeah, and in 2004, my brother's recommendation, he thought I might have an anger management issue. So I, I said, okay, sure, I'll, I'll go um, and, and talk to a therapist. And it, it took two sessions for them to, to tell me um, in 2004 that I had severe complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, I didn't know what to uh, – it, it was kind of cool to know that there all these, these feelings and thoughts and, and things that are related to post-traumatic stress disorder – I could finally put a name to it, you know, and, and understand. But then again, no one wants post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not fun. I don't have a filter on my mouth. Um, I say a lot of stuff and I end up uh, apologizing for my mouth afterwards quite often because once I think it, I speak it, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. And I, I'm going to apologize right now. If I blurt out, uh, drop an F-bomb, that's because I'm uh, uh, triggered at some point. I know how to conduct myself with interviews. Obviously, I've done quite a few of them. So I apologize to your listeners if I say something out of color. Um, and to you, Mike, um, it just I, I'm going to chalk it up to a, this uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury, and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not fun. Uh, that's definitely uh, totally understandable, too, to to be suffering that and have those, those issues. So I definitely can't fault you for that. Um, so part of your healing, um, it has been again, emotional. You've had to, to seek counseling, um, try and address some of these things that are probably a direct result of what happened to you. Um, how has that journey been for you, uh, for the last four plus, plus decades? Well, um, seeing as I, I, I found out what was wrong, you know, with, with me, um, in 2004, I, I've, I've been, uh, working diligently. I've, I've had a, uh, a therapist that was given to me from the California victims compensation, uh, board, uh, Dr. Sue, and she's a really great, uh, EMDR therapist. She's a trauma specialist. Um, matter of fact, we, because of this, uh, COVID-19 virus, we're down to sessions by phone, which I'm not too fond of, <laughs> but, um, I just spent an hour with her on the phone, uh, today at two o'clock. So yeah, I, I, I don't, I think I would be in a, in a really bad place if I wasn't, uh, seeking professional help at this point, you know, I'm going to be 60 this year, stuffing all that inside your body. For 42 years is vile. It's deadly. You gotta let it out. You know, it's, I have a group called Surviving Victims of Violent Crimes on Facebook. I created that group to give myself a voice. Well, I, I didn't realize I was going to give uh, 2,000 people their voice back, and they're able to speak in the group. And it's a it's a private group. It's a you know private setting. Uh, everyone's supportive of everybody. Um, you'd be surprised how one trauma will interact with another trauma, how a domestic violence trauma will 
I will be able to discuss it, you know, with like me, um, a murder and, and almost being murdered myself. I I'm able to relate to other traumas and we're able to give some valuable information to people, um, and not let them walk around in the dark like I did for so long. Um, I didn't know I could get help. I didn't know where to get help. I didn't know I needed help. You know, no one offered that to me in 1978. I think, uh, Cal VCB was 11 years old uh, in 1978, so they knew about violent crime, that people that experience trauma need help, but did someone come to my hospital bed? No. Did someone talk to my mother? No. I turned 18 in, uh, in the hospital. I was in a coma, so at, at some point they quit having my mom speak for me now because now I'm 18. So things were different. I was thrown into adulthood. I, I grew up on a beach in 1978 that night, you know, and it, it, it sucks. So over, over these last 40-plus uh, years, you've been trying to, to reclaim your life and get yourself healthy and, and uh, deal with your uh, the fallout from your trauma. And meanwhile, the case itself sort of has gone nowhere. And, and I know you've... We talked a little bit before we started that you aren't totally happy with uh, the police work that's been done. Um, you touched on that when they when you talked about when they first interviewed you, and, and but over the years since then, you, I take it that you're you're not happy with some other stuff that's done. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, you know, um, the the problem, one of the problems with the uh, San Diego uh, Cold Case Division, um, any lieutenant, any detective um, is only going to be there three to five years. Five years, uh, you're you're pushing it. You know, um, if I get someone on my case for five years, and and when I say someone on my case, <laughs> um, as loud as I bark at them. Or the way they've treated my family, Barbara's family, um, re-victimizing me. Um, I say re-victimizing. Um, last year, they had promised me the tape to be able to listen to them. So I was pressing them in our annual meeting that we I get two hours with them. And I was pressing the lieutenant, give me good reason why I'm not listening to that tape right now. And I pissed him off. So his response to me was, Mr. All, you're not going to like what I have to say. I go, oh, really? So I, I, I say, spit it out, because I think we're going to be talking about the tapes. He tells me that the FBI thinks I'm the number one suspect, and I blew it. I popped a cork. I stood up and said, you MF and, you know, and my girlfriend grabbed me around the waist at that time and another gal on the other side of me said, James, you know, Jim, James, that's, you know, calm down. Um, I went red, you know, you already accused me back in 1978. And then you got these, these guys, uh, that want to re-victimize me because they, they, I, I don't know why he said that. I, I mean, really, I, I beat myself into a coma. I crushed my skull, my face, my jaw. I mean, come on, man. Um, there, there's articles published where you talk about, you know, that I didn't do this. So, so why did he feel the need to re-victimize me and tell me 
that. I mean, the, the whole Barbara's sister Lorraine just dropped her head and was sobbing. It was ridiculous. He should have never said that to me. And so this year there will be no meeting because of this lieutenant likes to revictimize me. He he knows that he he knows how to pull my trigger. So now he's he's gotten to the point where him and I can't talk. And so he's told me flat out, I've had emails, sorry, there won't be a meeting this year. I'm going to have to go over his head, or I'm going to have a bunch of people on the doorsteps of the San Diego Police Department Thursday, August 13th this year. I've, I've got a, quite a few people that support what I do. Um, so I, I don't want to be, I want to stop going to the police department when I found my answers, but I want to hold them accountable for certain things like sending DNA to be swabbed when we wanted uh, MVAC, wet vac testing, stupid stuff like this. They've dropped the ball from the get-go and they re-victimize their victim. I don't know why they ever said those things to me. They've said other things uh, previous years that I'm not going to get into because it'll just be a, a slugfest. I won't be able to talk about anything but the PD. My therapist, Dr. Sue, does EMDR on me, so she desensitizes me from the San Diego Police Department. That's insane. Why would she have to do that? Well, I mean, they they push, they've said things that aren't appropriate to a victim. See, everyone says, Jim, just be thankful you're alive. They forget I was left for dead as well on that beach. And I've been suffering <laughs> ever since then. Yes, sir. And, and if, if there's any kind of not that there's a, a bright spot in this because has been uh, just from beginning to end has just been terrible, but they do seem to have uh, some evidence that might point to the the killer with with uh, DNA and a and a cigarette. But is that correct? Well, you know, it, it, I I would love for that to happen. Um, I, it, it, how how do I put this? They have dropped the ball so often. It isn't funny. Um, I believe there is still a, a DNA hit that is, is it's not a hit, but they do, we do have DNA on a cigarette butt. Uh, I just don't know what to say. I, in my lifetime, do I think my case will be solved? No. I think uh, the good Lord will, will tell me and Barbara will tell me what happened when I get there. That's sad, but true. The, the San Diego Police Department will not go on air with anyone. They will not talk to the media about my case. Um, you know, and, and I don't know if you're aware that at one point the FBI, well, the FBI still says it in one of my FOIAs, the last FOIA I received from them still says that the cases are considered related because of, you know, the, how the girls look, their similarities, the beach, when that was done, what was done to the girls. I mean, they say they're not related, but you, you cannot convince me that some individual woke up one day, six years later, and decided to do the same thing that was done to Barbara to Claire Huff. I'm sorry. I, I don't believe that for a second. Try to give me something that I can believe. That that just lightning doesn't strike twice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't buy that they're not related. Um, it's just too strange. I have both coroner's reports and pretty much the same thing was done to both girls. You know, I'm, I'm not, a, a, I, I didn't go to school to, to read these reports, but I mean, everyone else uh, that knows about them has, has read them to me and, and what 
certain things mean, like, um, uh, for instance, uh, I forget the, the terminology of blood when it is coagulated, how they can kind of determine how long that person, you know, sustained that injury or, or even, you know, was, was killed. I, I'm, I'm not that kind of person, obviously. Dude, I, I didn't even finish high school, man. This, this was just something that I didn't raise my hand for. Pick me, pick me. That was never anything I wanted a part of. This is a nightmare that has not ended. Well, the, the, the sad fact is, is it sounds like if they have a full profile from that cigarette butt, that they should be able to use genetic genealogy the way that they've done in so many cases that we've seen in the news. They caught the infamous Golden State Killer, another California killer, um, using that technology. So you would think that they would want to employ that and try and find out who that cigarette butt belonged to and see if they can uh, make a case against that person. Even if they've, even if that person is no longer alive, if they could somehow prove that person was the person that did this to you, it might be right. some some kind of peace to you and to Barbara's family. Right. Thank you for saying it the way you did. A lot of people say closure. You can never close a book on a situation like ours. I, I call it acceptance. I gotta learn you gotta learn to accept what what is happening and, and move move forward. Um and that's what I'm looking for, uh, acceptance. I'm trying to accept this and, and Here's the thing. As every year I go and, and, and fight for Barbara. I fight for myself uh, with the cops, um, trying to find out what they've done, why they didn't do something, how come they did this and not that. Um, and when I'm the only one swinging the bat up there, it, it, it's, I'm the lone soldier. I mean, I've, 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 I've had uh, Lorraine with me uh, just about every year that I've gone. She, she has sat by my side with this Lorraine as Barbara's oldest sister. You know, mom and dad went to the first one, and I understand it was too much for them. Uh, you know, uh, they had never heard my side of things and how, what I felt about this. With the, when we went to this meeting with the cops, and they found out very, very quickly that I wasn't going to take a back seat. Like, they were, you know, so quick to say, oh, we know you're busy, just let us know. It's like, no, no, no. I don't care. You're working on my case right now. I want answers. I said, the Nantes family wants answers. They just don't know how to ask you for them. They, you know, they have said that they have moved on. I don't know that that's the right term, moved on. They they, they said that they have been able to understand and and go on. Um, I, I have a normal life, but I also work um, my case nine to five on, on a daily basis. Um, when information comes to me, I, I search it out. I give it to the cops, um, but I, I'm not done by any means. Uh, right now I'm working on a, on a movie with a good friend of mine, Dan Liffick. He's the, uh, the filmmaker. Um, so we're going to touch on a lot of this stuff. Uh, the revictimization uh, that that happens, and this isn't the only one that I've talked about. There, are, there are plenty more where these where this came from, and they're all just as terrible as the one I spoke of. Shows and interviews, you've definitely done your part to try and keep this case out there, and and uh, so people wouldn't forget what happened, and, and right. including including the police, I, I assume. Um, exactly. And so the fact that now you're you're making a documentary about it uh, is is even more powerful uh, because that that many more people will hopefully become aware of the case with that. Absolutely, but and, and here's something else. Um, 
people are going to become aware of, of just how victims are treated by law enforcement. Um, you can't try to shut down an individual the, the, the way they tried to shut me down. You can't do that, especially when I have a voice. I'm not going to sit back. I don't care that you're law enforcement. I really don't because I'll have a camera with me everywhere I go. Um, I would like San Diego Police Department to do the right thing. Their homicide cold case division needs training in how to deal with people with post-traumatic stress disorder. Almost everyone they come in contact with victims have post-traumatic stress disorder. They do not know how to communicate properly to folks like myself. Um, they're very rude, um, very hurtful. They say things that uh, if I had money for an attorney, um, I, I think I would have already spent it and we would have been in court by now. Um, but I don't have that kind of money. I would rather them restore my faith in law enforcement, especially for San Diego. Um, here, my law enforcement agency where I live, I respect them. I don't have any communication with them, but I respect them. San Diego, when I go there, I tell people what I'm driving, the license plate, and if I get arrested, you know why. Um, so, no, I'm very uncomfortable around law enforcement in, in San Diego, very uncomfortable because of the way I've been treated. Understandable. And you you haven't been just an advocate for your case, for Barbara's case. You're also an advocate and founder or CEO of what you mentioned earlier, the uh, Surviving Victims of Violent Crimes. And you're dealing with lots of people that have gone through similar situations. And, and you sort of touched on that in, in all of their loss, all of their heartbreak, you you find common things to to help each other through that. Um, tell us a little bit more about that, that work that you do. Well, Mike, what, what, what that's all about is I created the group in 2011. Um, and I created it just so I could give myself a voice. I felt that the, the PD had taken my voice. I had duct tape on my mouth. I couldn't speak. I felt that any of the news media, they didn't want to hear from the boyfriend. They wanted to report on the, the, the murder of his girlfriend. But just be thankful you're alive, Mr. Alt. That's kind of um, what what brought me to be as forward as I am, to be as, as assertive, to, to get this group up and running. So I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I created a voice for myself for about 80, maybe 100 people. And then it morphed into um, something where he, uh, other people, they, they were thanking me for giving them their voice back for them able to talk about their situation. Maybe they weren't able to talk about it to their family. Why? Because family says, maybe it's time you, you just get over it. You move along. There is no time limit on trauma. And that's what people need to understand. Um, if you haven't experienced trauma, um, you shouldn't be talking about it. You shouldn't be telling someone, build a bridge, get over it. It's like, come on, folks. So being able to, to talk to people, uh, helping them understand how things work, how they need to get a hold of their district attorney, or they need to find a, the victim's compensation program for their, their state. I've gone and, and, and found pretty much all of them for them, and I tell them I have a link in the group where they can go to find help for them, themselves, how to get uh, tra a trauma specialist from, from uh their district attorney, um, stuff that they're entitled to. 
because you're a crime victim, you are entitled to certain things. Um, Compensation, I only, uh, you know, 37 years later, I was able to get it. Um, And all I wanted was them to pay my uh, therapist bills. Um, Because I was coming out of pocket with mine, and um, I didn't feel that was right. I, I, you know. So we just try to educate people that that are walking around in the dark, what to do, where to do. Okay, you don't tell them what to do. You suggest what um, you suggest um, what they can do, what they might want to do first. Kind of prioritize things for them and give it to them in little bites. Because uh, trauma victims, it, it's hard to, at least for me, um, if a lot of people are trying to help me, I will tend to grab the first bit of information and I'll hold on to that. And every other bit of information will go through both ears and hit the floor because I'm going to try to do the first thing that you told me to do. And that's very strange. I, that's PTSD completely. Um, like we were talking earlier and I said, oh, Please, I, I forgot where we were, Mike. What were you talking about? That is also something that, that's not fun that, that that happens. And a lot of people talk about it in the group. They always ask, does anyone ever ask, you know, we're in the middle of a conversation, all of a sudden you forget where you're at. Yeah, there's 30 of us that go, yeah, we're right here, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about our experience. So just allowing someone to speak about their trauma without their family, without their coworkers, without certain friends listening, where some place where they feel comfortable to talk to complete strangers. It's strange how that how that works. But I have so many thank you letters from that group. I know that it's working. It's magic how it's doing it because I didn't I didn't set out to do this. I didn't know I was gonna do this. Didn't know it was going to help this many people. Well, it's it's good work you're doing. And one more time, it's Surviving Victims of Violent Crimes on Facebook. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. Stop by. It's it's a private group. You know, you just, uh, we have a couple of of questions that we ask. You know, how did you hear about the group? Why do you want to join the group? And we just ask that that folks answer those questions. If you're with the media, obviously you need to contact me first. Um, There's other stipulations to join, but once you've joined, you're in a big family that will protect you be- because of uh, how I protect our members, how, how my admins and moderators, how we set the group up. Uh, media is, is, is kind of a bad thing because they use people. And they, as long as they get their story, they're good with that. And they don't, you know, I, I've seen it. It's happened to me. So I'm trying to keep that from happening to, to our members. So this is why we're taking baby steps working with you. Well, that's, that's a wonderful group. And I'm going to make sure that I put that in the notes. So people that need help, the kind of help that you can offer the kind of ally you can be for them. They can find you and, 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 and join that. And I want to ask one thing before we wrap up here. Yes, sir. And, and that is as, as someone uh, who's both a victim who survived and an advocate for Barbara who didn't, uh, as well as being an advocate for, for the other victims and families you work with, what advice can you give to listeners out there that might need some kind of encouragement from someone like yourself who has experienced 40-plus uh, uh, years of, of dealing with this? Okay. Um, great question. My advice 
to, to someone suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder or suffering with your trauma, please, please, please find a trauma specialist or just reach out to a therapist. And that therapist can probably put you in touch with the right people. But what I call, I used to be a stuffer. And that's when I stuffed all my vile stuff back inside of me. I wouldn't let it out. Um, by going and, and having a trauma specialist, I'm able to discuss that with her. And with my group, I was able to, to let my voice out. So with those two things, um, don't be a stuffer, folks. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you right now, that will kill you. That will put you where you do not want to be. Um, therapy is a real good thing. Man, back in the day, it was, you know, when you had a therapist, people frowned on you. But celebrities now have therapists. It's a cool thing to do. Um, it's the right thing to do. It's the healthy thing to do. So my suggestion would be to get a therapist. Um, and if you experience trauma, I, I would certainly look for that trauma uh, specialist to help you. Um, another thing I would like to talk about real quick is a uh, something that I do. It's called EMDR. It's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Because of my brain injury, I only my brain fires on one side. So when we do EMDR, say when Dr. Sue desensitizes me for the cops um, before my meeting, when she does that, I, I'm, I, it's eye movement, left and right, left and right. That makes your brain, you're accessing both sides of your brain as you're receiving information and you're processing information. So I'm able to, um, she's able to talk me down from, from my hypervigilance and all that crazy stuff that goes on when, when I meet with the cops, where I go in smiling, knowing that I have a purpose, I'm not going to let them trigger me, uh, and that I, I'm going to be there uh, for answers. And, and before I worked with Dr. Sue, I was going in there just screaming bloody murder, and that you know how well that works. Um, you get more flies with honey, I think they say. Definitely. Definitely. Well, that's fantastic advice, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. And, again, I appreciate you coming on to share your experience to help get us to know Barbara a little bit. Beautiful person, and thank you, Mike. And thank you. I, I, for, for, I don't know why I had never said that. An old soul, exactly. You hit the nail right on the head. Thank you, sir. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family. Before we wrap up, I wanted to tell you about a cool new project I'm taking part in. It's called True Crime Thursdays, and it's on the Get Vocal app, which is spelled V-O-K-L. You can download the app for your mobile device or PC. Once you do, search the app for me using my name, Mike Morford, or my moniker, True Crime Guy. Every Thursday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, I'll host a live stream show to talk about all things true crime, my podcast, and generally just hang out and shoot the breeze with my true crime friends. You can join me too and hang out, talk, ask questions, and more. For more details about this ongoing project, visit GetVocal.com. Again, that's vocal, spelled V-O-K-L. 
or check out my social media pages to learn more. I hope you'll stop by and say hi. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.